One of my favorite ways to unwind is by playing a game on my phone while I relax on the couch. And June's Journey is my new favorite as it combines several of my favorite things, finding hidden items, decor and design, and solving a murder. In June's Journey, you dive into June's captivating quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret while discovering the truth behind the unexplained death of her sister. As you uncover clues, you also get to build your own island estate with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. You get to collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. You get to chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. So can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode contains adult themes and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This is They Will Kill, a true crime podcast. I'm Sadie Eck. And I am Courtney Eck. And it's Courtney's night. I feel like Yay. just jumping straight into it. Yeah, let's get to the bottom of this, you guys. Let's get to the bottom of whoever recommended the murder of Paula Herring, because it was a listener suggestion. It was a great <laughs> listener suggestion, but your girl Courtney decided to read the whole entire book like I do. Mm-hmm. And... There's a lot of characters in this one. <laughs> so so get, get out the, your red string. That's yep. Yep. Get out your red string. I think that I've got it down to a point that everyone will be. I know I do because that is one of my biggest problems with listening to true crime is keeping track of the characters. This is a very fascinating story. It was quote unquote solved and then resolved like 30 years later by a like citizen detective. So, Ooh, yes. Love that. Yes. This is more commonly known as the babysitter murder, but I'm calling it the murder of Paula Herring. And the book that I keep referring to is A Murder in Music City by Michael Bishop. So in 1964, Paula Herring was an 18 year old student at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Paula had been an only child for most of her life, grew up in Nashville, and lived with her mother, Joe, and father, Wilmer, until her baby brother, Alan, was born when she was 12. I don't think I've ever heard the name Wilmer. I thought the same thing. And also, Alan is such a cute thing to name so a baby. <laughs> yes. Alan. My dear friends and our listener, one of our forever listeners is named Alan. It's a great name. I know. When thinking of it as a baby, though, it's so cute. It's so cute. So just to jump straight into horrible thing, Paula's father committed suicide by taking poison in a seedy motel just before she started her sophomore year of high school. Well, that's not traumatic. I know. And her mother used the insurance money to buy them a house to start their life over again. 
Paula hid any grief over her father's passing and was described as a tomboy when she was young and was a very athletic young woman who had excelled at basketball, tennis, golf, and bowling. No. Her friends said she was, quote, bright, clever, and a jokester, and playful and likable, but not flirtatious or coquettish. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> they also said she was a, quote, tough basketball player and was the society editor of the school newspaper. In 1962, strange dark circles started appearing in the yards of residents of Nashville, and Paula reported it in her article titled, A Dark Who Done It." Ooh, <laughs> yes. Paula's science, <laughs> well, <curious. laughs> Paula's science teacher speculated that the circles were most likely mold or fungus, and Paula reported, quote, Whatever it is, it sure is weird. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cute. The circles disappeared when the when the seasons changed, so it okay. does seem likely it was mold or fungus. What if it was Paula doing it to give her even better, to even better, even better, even better? Do mm-hmm. so. By the time Paula was ready for college, she had outgrown her tomboy phase, and friends said she was quote warm, lovable, intensely energetic, and full of plans for the future. She was an ambitious girl who could achieve anything she wanted to achieve. After she outgrew the tomboy stage, she thought for a while of going into journalism. Paula was very successful in college and, quote, was a gregarious extrovert who made friends easily and rapidly. The quote continues, within weeks of her enrollment on the Hill, meaning University of Tennessee campus, she made scores of friends. Her room became headquarters for card games and gab fests and hairdos, and she'd been elected president of the dorm floor. In February of 1964, she decided to switch her major from biology to pre-law, which basically like, I'm going to be a med student, psych, I'm going to be a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) I I struggle with that same Mm. dilemma Mm. every day. Tell me about it. That's why I've never become either, because I'm just too good at both. (laughs) (laughs) And she planned a trip back to Nashville to visit her mother and brother for the weekend of February 22nd. Her mother had dinner plans with some friends and invited Paula to come along, but she had a book report to work on, so said she'd stay at home and watch her brother, Alan, who she was very close with, and she'd named Sputnik, nicknamed Sputnik, which she'd then later shortened to Sput. (laughs) (laughs) So cute. So cute. So on February 22nd, Paula's mother, Jo, who was working as a nurse at Vanderbilt Hospital, had returned home after dinner with two male friends, and when they walked into the den, they found Paula lying face down on the rug in a pool of her own blood. No way. Yeah. She was fully clothed, was battered and bruised, and Joe tried to find a pulse but was too late. One of the men immediately got back into his car and drove away. Oh, wow. And the other called the police. Uh I can't say I blame him, but... Yeah, he's like, I started to get sick, and so I just got out of there. Alan came out of his bedroom and said that he'd woken up earlier and found Paula face down on the rug, and when he couldn't get her to wake up, he'd gone back to bed. Oh, buddy. 
Police arrived and reported that Paula's legs had been spread out with one of her feet hooked around the leg of the TV set and that her arms were close to her side with her hands in a, quote, awkward palms up position as if someone had just removed her coat. They found two bullet casings under her body and her sweater was wadded up on the sofa nearby with bullet holes in it suggesting that the killer had used it to muffle the sounds of the shots. Paula had been very badly beaten, strangled with bare hands, and shot twice in the back, execution style with a 32 caliber automatic weapon, which had killed her. Her wristwatch had been smashed and stopped at around 10.32 p.m., which is also when the medical examiner determined was her time of death based on rigor mortis. What time did her mom come home? Around 11. Oh, okay. So soon. She had not been sexually assaulted. That detail was important because the area where the family lived in Nashville had been terrorized by a young rapist leading up to Paula's murder. He had been described as a, quote, young man with dark hair, a fast runner, early 20s, around 5'11", with a light build, and was usually seen late at night on weekends, always targeting houses where there was no man home at the time. After police failed to respond to the reports of the prowler and rapists, or responded and then, quote, trampled on whatever evidence was left behind, a vigilante group of 250 residents formed to try to catch the ban, so the area was on high alert. Wow. Yeah. Good for them. I know. So two Vanderbilt students had been arrested just hours after Paula's murder, but were later cleared when their gun didn't match the bullets found on the scene and both had solid alibis. Soon after that, the manager at a local Crystal Burger contacted the DA's office to report that a, quote, bloody guest had come in to use the phone on the night Paula was murdered and the restaurant was only three minutes from Paula's home. The man had said he needed to contact a service station because he was having car trouble, but the manager pointed out that the station was closed, and so he'd left. Then on Monday the 24th, a 27-year-old man named Al Baker met with his friend who was a police officer in Nashville. The officer brought him to the station to repeat his story, and he said that he'd met a man named John Randolph Clark, who was married, when they were both dating women who were neighbors and they'd run into each other several times at local bars. Al said that he'd run into John at the local diner on the night that Paula was murdered and that John had, quote, just been talking on the phone to a UT freshman who was home visiting her mother and that John had invited himself over with some beer. Okay, so I feel like this is when we need to get our... Maps yes. Out. Yes. Al Baker's at a at a diner. He runs into this guy John Clark, who he had met when they were both dating women who lived next door to each other. Okay. <laughs> and John is married. John Clark was married, and so he was dating not his wife. Okay. Right. Yeah. And so he runs into him at the diner. They like are hanging out, and John is like, "Yeah, I met this woman. I just called her house. She wasn't home, but her daughter is. So I was looking for her mother." Got but I'm just going to go over there and see if I can put the moves on the daughter. Gross. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. Uh, the answer to that is no, you can't. Right. But he that was what he was going to do. 
He was looking for a fun night out. So Al Baker also mentioned that John owned a 32 caliber Beretta, which he carried in a shoulder holster. So police headed right on over to John's house. John agreed to go to the station for questioning. His wife followed them so she could give him a ride home when they were done. Little did she know they would be questioning him for 11 hours. Oh, no. So John Clark had come from a very prominent Tennessee family, and his father had been a General Sessions judge and the Republican floor leader in the Senate. John hadn't been as successful as all of his siblings, who had chosen successful careers in the CIA, Air Force, and real estate. No big deal, man. Yeah. He had enlisted in the Navy after high school and was honorably discharged after his ship was torpedoed on D-Day and he was found unconscious on Omaha Beach. Wow. So it's not really John's fault that he wasn't as ambitious as his other siblings. He got torpedoed on D-Day. Yeah. You're done after that. You've right? Done it. Everybody yes. should be like, this is my son who was torpedoed on D-Day. Don't worry about it. He's mm-hmm. a little soft, but he is a hero. <laughs> After he was discharged, he enrolled in college to study science, and during a UT game, University of Tennessee game, he, quote, took over as guest cheerleader for the UT cheering section and was such a hit that whenever the regular cheerleaders would try to take over, the crowd would boo them down until (laughs) John came back. Oh, no. That's a good-ass cheerleader. (laughs) Seriously. But check this out. So after Knoxville, after the Knoxville newspaper reported on this, John was expelled from school. Why? I don't know because it's the South. I don't know. Well, the kind they're of like Northern you're South. too good being a cheerleader. I don't know. I just feel like John has a dark, dark cloud over him. I mean, clearly. So when police asked John where he'd been on the night Paula was murdered, he said that he'd visited friends, taverns, and liquor stores, and was home by nine thirty p.m. He said the next day he and his wife visited her family and he picked up a bunch of paperback books that his brother-in-law was trying to sell for him. Police had noted that a specific book had been stolen from the scene of the murder, so this detail stuck out to them. We'll get more, we'll get back, we'll get back to that in a bit. John also said that his 32 caliber Beretta had been stolen around 10 days before the murder, but he hadn't reported it. John said that during the 11 hours of questioning, there, was, there were never less than two officers present, and at some points there were as many as 15. He was not given... 15? 15. Wow. He was not given food, was not provided his medication or access to a lawyer or doctor, and when he asked to use the restroom, he was told, quote, you're stuck to that chair. Yeah, I don't think that's legal. No, it's definitely not legal. Well, and I didn't really get into this because there's plenty to get into, but the Nashville Police Department was very, very corrupt around this time. Mm. I think that all of Mm. Tennessee's government was especially corrupt around this time, but yeah, there's it's sort of notoriously a bad time to be in the police in Nashville. So he refused to give any DNA samples or take a polygraph, but he did allow a full body search and there were no scratches, bruises, or marks of any kind on his entire body. And don't forget, Paula is very, very athletic, very strong, and fought like the Dickens. So to have 
engaged in that kind of a fight with her, yeah, something would have shown up on your body. Absolutely. So the manager of the Crystal restaurant was brought in to identify the man who had come into her store on the night of the murder, and she could not confidently pick anyone out of the lineup as the bloody customer who wanted to use the phone. Without any solid evidence to tie John Clark to the murder, he was released. For real? Yeah. For okay. now. For now. For now. <laughs> it's like, this seems too easy. For now. So on the night of the murder, a man had spotted someone strange in his neighborhood and heard a, quote, noisy car pull away afterward. And on Wednesday the 26th, that same man found a paperback copy of All the King's Men at the edge of the field across from his house. That same day, Al Baker went back to the police to tell them another story he had about John Clark. So this is Al Baker, the old snitcheroo who had mm-hmm. run into John Clark at the diner. And actually, I don't think Al's a snitch. I think this these things sincerely happened to him. Okay. I was like, yeah. is Al trying to divert I attention? I thought so at first, but I don't think so. I think that okay. this, yeah, we'll get into it. But So he said that on the previous Christmas Eve, so this is February, so just in December, two months previous, He'd run into John at the same diner and had convinced him to go to a Christmas party with him. At the party, John had gotten into an argument with another man and had pulled his gun on him, so the other man had left the party. Yikes. So Al, John, and two other friends then left the party and drove to an apartment in town. And on the way, the men teased John that his gun had blanks in it. So they're like, oh, you're so tough, but I'm sure those aren't real bullets kind of a thing. So when they got out of the car, John shot two shots into the ground (laughs) to prove that his bullets were real. So Al Baker tells police this and police are like, drive right over to the apartment that he said this happened in. They started digging for the bullets and dug for them from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., but didn't find them. Okay, so they're assuming he shot him up in the air. They well, fell no, into, into the, the ground. He, no, he oh, shot into, <laughs> into the ground. Okay, that no, makes no, no. sense. Yes, no. I was like, how do they know where they're going to come back down? No, to? no, 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 okay. no. Also, yeah, no. So they, it was 10 p.m. when they got there, 10 p.m. In, a, like, in February, so it's already dark. They dug until 2 a.m. and they're like, screw this, let's come back in a couple hours. So they left the site completely unattended overnight. And when they came back the next morning, quote, one of the detectives immediately spotted a bullet lying partially uncovered Uh, next to the sidewalk. Give me a break. And no big surprise, that bullet was determined to be a perfect match to the bullets found at the scene of Paula's murder. So John's clothes, Paula's clothes, and the paperback book plus the bullets, were sent to the FBI for testing, and the media went wild with stories that Paula's killer was about to be announced. So based on their super shitty evidence, police arrested John Clark, and he was charged with premeditated murder and murder while attempting to commit the felony of rape. Mm. Because they were like, why else would you attack a pretty young girl? Right. No other reason ever. Well, and there was nothing stolen. There was nothing. There was nothing else. Nothing. There was. So they're like, he must have been attempting rape, but it didn't work or whatever. And so just killed her out of rage. 
So he went to trial on September 21st, 1964. And before it started, the judge announced that the trial would last exactly five days. Oh, that's good, judge. That's good news. And the jury would be sequestered the entire time and neither side objected, which is so strange. Yeah. In the most explosive moment of the trial, Paula's mother, Joe, admitted that she'd had a one-night stand with John Clark two weeks before her daughter's murder. Hmm. They'd met at the same diner that Al Baker had seen John Clark in so many times, which it seems like this this diner is the place that everybody was constantly hanging out. It right. Come, it came up a lot in the story. And so, And then John had gone over later that night with some beer and they had hooked up. And I read, too, that Alan, like, was going to bed and he, like, gave him a horsey ride to bed and blah, blah, blah. But it was just a casual, you know, they met, they hooked up. Hook that up. was the end of yeah. it. Yeah. So when the defense attorney asked if they'd had normal intercourse, Joe had said, quote, I guess you would say fair. Which is LOL. <laughs> like he's rating his performance. Exactly. Yes. Oh, she's no, like, bud. He's like, was it normal? And she's like, it was fair. <laughs> He was like, no, was it weird? <laughs> She's like, awkward? <laughs> yeah. She was like, I've had, I've, had, I've had better. She said at one point, John saw a, po- a photo of Paula and Joe had explained she was away at college. And so the two had not known each other. So she's meaning John and Paula had not met. Joe testified that Paula had arrived home the night before her murder and had gone shopping and run errands on the day she was murdered. When Paula got home, Joe had told her she'd been invited out to dinner with two men she'd met the night before, and Paula offered to watch Alan while she went out. Quote, I've got a date with all the King's men and a report to finish Monday for school, she'd said. No. Paula's brother Alan testified that someone had called at one point that night, and Paula had answered the phone, said hello, and then said goodbye just a couple of beats later, and that her tone, quote, was a little bit friendly. He said that someone called after he'd gone to bed and he'd gotten up to answer it, and a man's voice had asked for Joe. That was when he'd found Paula unconscious and had gone back to bed to wait for his mother. So Al Baker testified, and the defense got him to admit that he had tried to buy John Clark's gun more than once, and on one occasion, was that was right before the murder. So he had wanted to buy the gun that's now missing, and one of those occasions was right before Paula was murdered. Baker had also told friends that the gun was his, but he'd never paid for it, suggesting that maybe he'd stolen it and committed the murder himself. So John Clark's wife testified that John had gotten home at 9.30 p.m. on the night of the murder, and John Clark himself took the stand. The prosecution questioned him for five hours. I think they asked him more than nine, over 950 questions. Wow. And managed to paint the picture that he was womanizing, heavy drinking, and had a ragged employment record. Because he got torpedoed. Let's not forget. The man got torpedoed on D-Day. So by Friday afternoon at 5.15 p.m., exactly five days after the trial began, the jury verdict was in. Which is... Yeah, like, how do you... This isn't fair. This is not how trials work. No, this is not fair. The judge is like, you better decide right now. 
Well, the crazy it's thing all done. is, and this they didn't go into this in the book at all, but don't forget his father was a prominent attorney and had been in the Republican Senate. So I don't know if like he had beef with the judges in Nashville. I do know that he had a really good defense attorney, like excellent. He also defended the man who shot Martin Luther King. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he was serious business, but... I don't. I don't know. I the the his father must have had beef with these judges or something because that just seems so strange. Well, and it's so rare for that to happen. Prominent kids getting right that falsely accused and yeah yeah. So John Clark was found guilty of murder in the first degree and sentenced to thirty years in prison. Hmm. Quote: As the sentence was announced, Clark appeared to black out and he would have fallen to the floor if not grabbed by one of his defense attorneys. A few moments later, Clark came to and asked what happened. He then said that all he had heard was guilty. Yeah, I can't imagine. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I feel like I'm, bl- I'm blacking out right now for him. It's <sighs> so awful. Literally, literally my biggest fear. Especially when you know that everything's stacking up against you. The media, the police, the judges, everybody's, you, you're just like, there's no way I'm getting out of this. Yeah, this is a you're done on a runaway, deal. yeah, runaway train. Well, and they also had already had the rapists prowling the neighborhood. It was Nashville in the 60s. Kennedy had just been shot. On and on and on. It was a lot of pressure and a lot of things were happening. And so this case, of course, when the like, beloved 18-year-old comes home from college and gets murdered for no reason, like there's, it's, that's just going to be the thing that's distracting everybody. And so they're going to need to put on a big old show. And that's exactly what they did. So in 1997, a reporter named Michael Bishop was in Nashville having lunch with a friend who was working on a project about 40 unsolved crimes and mysteries in Nashville history. And after lunch, Bishop went to the city's archives to look into the crimes more to see if he would be interested in helping out on the project. The clerk who helped him let him know that they just received several boxes full of administrative records that had belonged to former police chief Hubert Kemp, who had been in charge in the 60s, and asked if he'd wanted to see them. So these are just administrative records. This is not Mm -hmm. crime files or case files. It's just records. And he said, sure, sounds great. In those boxes, he found Paula Herring's crime scene file, which struck him as extremely weird. Yes. So Bishop started calling all of the neighbors from the time of Paula's murder and all of the Herrings in the phone books to see if he could learn more about the case. He learned that Joe, Paula's mother, had moved back to Texas after the murder and had died of liver failure due to alcoholism when she was just 52. Oh, Joe, that's sad. Poor Alan. Poor Alan. I, poor Alan. Loses his father to suicide, loses his sister to murder, and then loses his mother to alcoholism. It is a rough life. Family members also said, he found some of her family members, they said that they were suspicious of Wilmer's apparent suicide. Joe had claimed he'd killed himself because he'd lost his job, but he'd been a pilot in World War II and was college educated, so was very well positioned to get a new job. Joe had also said he'd left a suicide note, but no one had ever seen it. Uh Uh-oh, Joe. 
So Bishop also managed to track down Paula's little brother, Alan Herring, who had completely blocked out the entire weekend from his memory. He did say that he'd always wondered why he hadn't been murdered that night too, and also wondered where his father's suicide note was. He said his mother had always promised to share it with him, but never did, and there was no sign of it in her things after she died. He also learned that Paula's mother, Joe, had purchased two grave sites in February of 1964, which is the same month that Paula was murdered. Paula was buried in one of the sites, but the other remained empty in oh, 1997. No. Oh, no. I didn't expect this. Well, <laughs> God, there's a fair amount more to cover. Wow. So Bishop looked for John Clark and learned that he'd been released from prison in 1975 after he paid the governor at the time, who was famous for being incredibly corrupt, $10,000 for a pardon. I'm sorry. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. Really? Yep. For real. He just bought wow. himself a pardon. Yeah. John Clark had died around 1985, and his wife had died six years later. Well, and I'm sorry. I'm not over the, the bribe or the, no, not the bribe. Yeah, it's a bribe. The, That's a bribe. $10,000 really is a pretty good mm-hmm. deal. If you ask well, me. it's 1975 though, so that's like a million okay. and a half dollars. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> true. Good, good point. You could buy a house for ten thousand dollars. So, yeah, he the yeah. governor was raking it in. If he was selling pardons for ten k a pop, I mean, I'm oh. sure that's probably thirty, forty thousand dollars now, right? Right. It's gotta but be. still, so, still, yeah, yeah. No, I would, I would assume that a, a pardon would be like a million bucks, but, but yeah. This episode is brought to you by our friends, Care Of. Care Of is a subscription service that ships high-quality personalized vitamins, supplements, and powders conveniently to your door every month. Care Of also helps track your wellness progress through their thoughtfully designed companion app. Supplements can be a huge support for how you feel, and Care Of recognizes they're only a piece of the puzzle. Care of just updated their app with new features that help you build a holistic daily wellness routine and help you track how your routine is working over time. As your needs and goals change, Care of can help you adjust your routine to match. Their quiz can be retaken at any time to give you updated recommendations, and you can also adjust your habits and routine tracking in the app. So I've been taking care of now for a few months, and I've got to say that I do feel better. My hair is shinier. My fingernails are stronger. My digestion seems to be better. I have, it's now mm, really hot here in central Indiana, and I've been taking some of their electrolytes. They come in convenient little packages. I'm holding them right now, and it helps me stay hydrated because also, you guys, I like to sweat. So yeah, go take their quiz. It's personalized. It's awesome. It asks you what your goals are, and then it shows you exactly what they will be sending you every month. For 50% off your first care of order, go to takecareof.com and enter code THEYWILL50. Again, that's for 50% off your first care of order, 50%. Go to takecareof.com and enter code THEYWILL50. So in 
So before his death, John had become a preacher at a giant RV park in Florida where he and his (laughs) wife spent their winters. Despite the fact that he had been caught in a hotel with a sex worker at one point. So John remained a little bit of a philanderer, even Mm -hmm. after he paid his $10,000 pardon. He did maintain his innocence until he died. Well, I'm 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 glad that he didn't stay. Me too. In prison me too. forever. Yeah, me too. So Bishop was able to obtain the entire court transcript and track down six of the women who had lived in Paula's dorm at college. They alleged that Paula was excited to be in college to quote escape the sadness of her father's death and her mother's alcoholism and lifestyle choices. The quote continues, she also wanted to help out her younger brother, Alan. They said that she joined a sorority and seemed intent on fitting in and that one time she'd paid for ski equipment and then didn't have enough money to pay for food for the rest of the quarter. Oh. Yeah. Bishop also realized that the manager of the Crystal Burger, who had reported a bloody customer in her store on the night of the murder, hadn't been called in to testify at trial. (sighs) Okay. (laughs) He also found an article about how a man named Sam Carlton had suddenly gifted a, quote, noisy car. So remember the night of the murder, a neighbor said that he heard a weird noisy car to a professional wrestler. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) And his wife the day after Paula's murder. The professional wrestler and his wife said that they were surprised by the gift because they barely knew Sam Carlton. And the wife noted that his face had been scratched when he dropped off the car. Of course it had. So then Bishop learned some really wacky shit. He learned that in October of 1964, one month after John Clark was found guilty of murder, Charles Galbraith, who had been John's defense lawyer, learned that a woman named Ruth Mary, which is such a great name, Ruth Mary Cobb, had been visited by a man named Dr. Murray Cook. So you don't have to remember <laughs> all these names. Okay. You don't have to remember all these names. Just get, just go into just a keep going with it. Yep, we're going, we're going with it. So Dr. Cook had been one of the men in the car the night they'd claimed that John Clark fired his gun into the ground at the apartment complex. So D- Dr. Cook was one of the men giving John Clark shit for for pulling the gun and he was like oh there's definitely blanks in that gun right and mm-hmm. then they get to the apartment and then john clark fires the gun at the ground right miss cobb claimed that dr cook said that he knew that john clark was innocent and that his good friend al baker was the one who was actually guilty of the murder so miss cobb then filed a notarized deposition And she said that Dr. Cook had also called the district attorney as well as a reporter from the Nashville Banner to share his story. So the guy that we thought was... I don't think he is. We'll get there too. This is why I'm excited to talk about this one. I'm excited to break it down because... Okay. It's it's wiggly, you guys. It's wiggly. Does not tie up up with a neat neat bow. Like who... I feel like it's a twist and a turn. Who are we pinning this on and I why? Don't, yeah, I, we'll get there. But even then, I'm like, mm, I still have a lot of questions. There's still a lot of loose ends in this one. I will say that. I think it's fairly clear that John Clark did not do it. I feel pretty satisfied with that. But the rest of it, mm, 
we'll see. <laughs> right? We'll see, yes. So Charles Galbraith had personally put up a reward for any information that would lead to Paula's actual murderer. And a few days after Ms. Cobb shared her story, a lawyer named W.B. Hogan reached out <laughs> and, and said that his client could identify the man who had been in the Crystal Burger on the night of the murder. And that man was Sam Carlton. So Sam Carlton had gifted his noisy car to the professional wrestler the day after. The okay. Murder, right. Okay. So right. this this lawyer reaches out. He's like, I've got this guy who knows who was at the Crystal Burger, and it was Sam Carlton. So this part's pretty awesome. So Charles Galbraith, the defense attorney, John Clark's defense attorney, uh-huh. and the other lawyer came up with a plan. They decided to pretend that Galbraith refused to pay the reward. So he had said, I will pay you whatever, $250,000 or whatever for any information that leads to the actual conviction of the actual murderer. So they're like, Galbraith's like, I will pretend to refuse to pay the reward. And so then the other lawyer would have to sue him. And so then their civil suit would get to court and then the judge would have to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What are we talking about here? <laughs> a murder? Uh-huh. And then would have to be forced to look into John Clark's conviction, and it worked. Really? Yes. Okay, so they pretended like they weren't going to pay the thing. The and- reward. So that then the other lawyer would have to sue him and be like, well, you promised that you would pay a reward for this information and you're not. So we're going to sue you. So they would go to civil court, not criminal court, but they go to civil court and then the judge would have to hear the evidence of a murder trial. Right. Which could, then he could rule to reopen the case. Exactly right. Bingo, bingo. Wow. That's really clever. I know. So clever. So the man who claimed to know Sam Carlton was named Henry King, and he said that on the night of Paula's murder, he'd been at Parkview Hospital in Nashville because his wife was recovering from surgery and had stopped by the Crystal Burger on the way home. He said he was parked out front before entering and watched as Sam Carlton exited the Crystal and said that Sam was bleeding from his head and also had blood on his arm and pants. When he asked Sam what happened... He said he'd been knocked over the head by two men and was heading home to get his gun to kill them. Oh, God. Under oath, King said that he'd never reported the incident because he hadn't wanted to get involved until he saw the offer for the reward money. (laughs) Got a bunch of straight shooters, a bunch of real upstanding citizens in this case. Yes. So Sam Carlton was called to testify at the civil trial, turned murder investigation, and confirmed that he had run into King at the Crystal Burger, but said it had been on November 3rd, 1963, not February 22nd, 1964. Oh, really? He can remember that? Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, they, he had some reason for claiming to remember it. But the other man's wife had already signed a sworn statement that her husband had visited her in the hospital on February 23rd and mentioned that he'd run into a bloody Sam Carlton the night before. So... They, they confirmed here she was in the hospital on February 22nd. And she was like, yes, he came in the next day and was like, you'll never, I, blame, I ran into Sam Carlton. It was covered in blood last night. It was the strangest thing. So seems likely that King that, ran into Sam Carlton covered in blood at the Crystal Burger. Wow. On the night that Paula was murdered. 
So Galbraith got Carlton to admit that he'd given his car, which had been his only car at the time, to a professional wrestler. (laughs) (laughs) So crazy. Immediately after Paula's murder. Carlton had also lived just down the street from the house where Paula was murdered. Despite all of this, the judge ruled that they didn't prove that Carlton had been the bloody man at the Crystal Burger that night and so wouldn't reopen the case. No. Another judge overturned that, but it didn't have any effect on Clark's conviction. So another police detective named R.B. Owen had written that he had given orders that no one should touch Clark's or Paula's clothing but him, and he'd witnessed another officer handling both sets of clothing at the same time, which cross-contaminated them. So Galbraith asked for a new trial based on this evidence. Mm -hmm. He'd also argued that there was no way to know where the bullet had come from that was discovered in the ground at the apartment, but all of his appeals were turned down, including the one that made it all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And I'm also like, why didn't you do a better job at trial? It just seems like such an easy case to... There's just so many holes, clearly. Like, he could have poked so many holes into Exactly. Exactly right. Such shitty, like loose, weak evidence. There was no solid evidence of any kind other than the bullet. But even that, you know, you could have been like, well, who was watching the ground all night long? Nobody. So that bullet could have come from anywhere? Yes, sure enough. Right. Very easy to drop it on the sidewalk. Yes. So Bishop kept digging and also learned through Paula's autopsy that she had been shot twice in the back and once in the front near her collarbone, but only the two shots in the back had been investigated or mentioned at trial, (laughs) suggesting maybe that she'd been shot with two different guns. Okay. Bishop also interviewed a woman named Evelyn. So here again, like I will walk you through this. We'll we'll kind of try to help keep you on track, but we're going to introduce some more characters now. So Bishop also interviewed a woman named Evelyn who had worked with and played bridge with Joe, Paula's mother. So they were nurses together Mm -hmm. and they had played bridge together. And Evelyn claimed that Joe had called her at 9 p.m. on the night that Paula was murdered and was screaming that something was wrong and wanted her to come over. So Joe called Evelyn at 9 p.m. Don't forget the police, the police were called at 11 p.m. Like right. the, the official dispatch went out at 11 p.m. So 9 p.m. Yeah. And her time of death was ruled to be around 10.30. Yeah. yeah. And then there, I, I saw at trial that there was also some mention of 9.30. So between 9.30 and 10.30 p.m. Mm-hmm. Uh, officially is when she was pronounced dead. So 9 p.m., at least a half an hour to an hour before she was supposed to be dead or had died. Joe calls her friend Evelyn. It's like, come on over. I need your help. She said that Joe was in the driveway when she pulled up and there were a couple of detectives that arrived around the same time. But the two men that testified they'd gone to dinner with Joe that night were not there. So remember, like one of them was like, I got in the car, got the fuck out of there. And the other one stuck around. So Mm -hmm. Evelyn gets there at 9 p.m. Neither of those men were there. Who also said they got there around 11 p.m.? But detectives were there. But detectives were there, yes. Police detectives. Yes, police officing detectives were there. At 9 p.m. Correct. 
Evelyn also claimed that Joe had been having an affair with a lawyer in the district attorney's office and that Joe, Evelyn, and some of the other nurses Joe worked with would meet up with a, quote, couple of low-level police detectives, some lawyers, and politicians to, quote, make a plan in the middle of the day or sometimes after work. We'd meet up with a couple of the guys at one of the hideouts, so these are like apartments that they had all around Nashville, and have some fun, and then maybe swap and have some more fun. Oh, swinger nurses and cops. Yep. And the lawyer who Joe had been dating during that time was one of the lawyers for the prosecution against John Clark. Of course he was. Yep. So Bishop also spoke to Paula's high school best friend, Carmen Lee, who said that Paula had used Joe's car to visit her on the morning she was murdered, which contradicted Joe's testimony that she had used the car to go to work that morning. So that's only important because Joe had laid out what had happened after Paula had gotten home from school. Right. And it didn't line up. So Carmen was like, no, she surprised us. She came over, we were having pancakes. She hung out for an hour, but she was there in the morning. With Joe's car, the only car that they had between the two of them. Carmen also said that she and Paula had plans to go to a basketball game together the night she was murdered, and Paula never showed up. She said that she was never questioned by the police about anything, and she was her best friend. Like She was still in high school, but she was going to go to UT to be with Paula. They were best friends. She said that Joe had called her to come over a couple of days after the murder and, quote, asked me a lot of questions. And I hadn't been there too long when she asked me if I wanted something to drink. I was sitting at their kitchen table and I could see that she already had a glass of lemonade or something made up, but I could only see one glass at the counter. So she was like, I got the fuck out of there and I never went back. But she said Paula or Joe was clearly like, wanting to see what she knew if she'd if Paula had mentioned anything or you know if Carmen was aware that the uh, timelines didn't line up uh-huh. or if Paula had said anything to her leading up to her murder. Creepy. Yeah. With poison lemonade. With poison lemonade ready to go. Ooh. So after decades of searching, Bishop eventually this is where it gets real confusing, but again, I'll walk you through it. Bishop eventually found a man named Carl Rayleigh who had worked at Vanderbilt Hospital the same time that Joe did. He had gone by Blue Sky at the time that Paula was killed. And so Carl Rayleigh explained that on the night of the murder, he and a man named Jesse Henderson had gone to dinner with Joe and another nurse named Lizzie. So these are not the men that testified under oath that they had been with Joe on the night of the murder. Those men's names were Vanderpool and Meadows. So they, Vanderpool and Meadows had been the ones who had testified at trial that they had been with her until 11 p.m. They dropped her off and found Paula dead. So it was actually Carl Rayleigh and Jesse Henderson who were also in the Navy. Mm -hmm. You know, so John Clark had been in the Navy. These guys were in the Navy. But they had been the ones to go to, to... dinner with Joe and a nurse named Lizzie. Okay. So he said that they picked Joe up and I think Lizzie up at the hospital that they worked at. 
then went through the drive-through at a different Crystal Burger. And Eight Burgers, they had like a drive-up. I think it was like a drive-up. You pull up and order, and they bring you your baskets and mm-hmm. the, hook them on the side of the car. Mm-hmm. When so, roller skates, hopefully. Exactly. So they went to the Crystal Burger. Somebody had beers. They drank beers, ate burgers. Then they went and got Joe's car back at the hospital on the way home, and then they followed Joe home. He said that once they got to Joe's house, Paula and Lizzie, the other nurse, Mm -hmm. got into a fight and Paula bit Lizzie. Wow. So Lizzie shot her. Oh, no. Yeah. And so who's saying this? Carl Rayleigh. So this guy, and if you read the book, it's like, oh boy. So, So Michael Bishop, the author of the book, met this guy, Jesse Henderson. It's like following this guy around all over the country. This guy's right. like a billion years old. And Keeps he, like meeting with him. And Jesse's like alluding to all of these things this whole time and like mentioning Lizzie and mentioning da da And then he meets with this woman named Amanda who had been a friend. And he met with Lizzie's daughter, Gina, who had been like, my mom was a bad, <laughs> bad lady. And I'll get Man. to this too. But Gina was like, she definitely would take money for men to be able to do things to me, Gina, oh, her no. daughter. Yeah. yeah. So Michael Bishop's like figuring out that there's a, like Joe is really wrapped up in a lot of shady shit. Yeah, clearly. And wait, is, so is the author of the book, the one that got his hands on the, police or was that just okay it's the author yeah so he's the person i keep mentioning bishop is the one who Mm -hmm. found all of this stuff and he okay i mean he did spend like 20 years pulling all of this together and talked to all these different people and all the neighbors and all the friends of paula's and all of joe's friends so really what it comes down to is joe was hanging out with some super fucking shady people extremely shady people and she seems like she was sort of the ringleader of this Mm -hmm. nurse sex operation that was going on she also had she got fired for mishandling the medication at work Uh no big surprise i'll get to this in a moment but carl rayleigh was the administrator of the orders of all the medication for the hospital and so yeah basically joe and lizzie which i'll get to more in a moment had essentially started this like this sex club with Mm -hmm. some other nurses so they were meeting with police detectives, politicians, and lawyers having sex, partying, giving them pills, et cetera. Right. And so they're all just hanging out and being buds. So Carl Rayleigh and Jesse Henderson, they were there that night, but they were just thinking they're going to party with Joe and Lizzie because that's what they did. That's what everybody did with Joe and Lizzie. And then they get back to Joe's house. Paula is there, gets into a fight with Lizzie because she hates her mother and hates her mother's friends. Right. And it escalates or it had been planned. Well, we can talk about that more at the end, but then, so Lizzie was the one who actually shot Paula. So Carl Rayleigh said that no one called the police or helped Paula, despite the fact that Joe and Lizzie were nurses. Hmm. He said that they freaked out, drove to a motel for a while and left Alan alone in the house with Paula That's so crazy. To die. Just left her there to die. But then realized they'd left the gun, so returned to the house to get it. So Evelyn, back to Evelyn, the other one of the other nurses who was in this party ring, also confirmed that Joe and Paula fought constantly and that Paula had basically raised Alan before she left for school. (sighs) 
quote, and Joe is watching her daughter become prettier than her mother. And the now 18 year old is off to college having a great time. She's becoming a leader. She helped start the first snow skiing club at the University of Tennessee, and she's about to join a prestigious sorority. Life was probably better than it had ever been. So sad. And so Joe was jealous. And how old was Alan? He was six. Oh, little. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's a little boy. So Evelyn also confirmed that Joe was the nurse who would take care of the, quote, bigwigs, when they came to the hospital to, quote, discreetly dry out. (laughs) So formed relationships with lots of powerful people in the area. So they would go to the hospital to to get Mm -hmm. sober. Yep. And Joe was the one who was like in charge of that area. Wow. Joe was, quote, willing to help them out with whatever they needed. And one of those people was the mayor at the time, Beverly Briley, which who's a man, and you know I love a Southern, love when a man has a <clears throat> lady's name in the South. Beverly. Beverly, that's amazing. Quote, one of the Vanderbilt doctors was trying to help him with his addiction problems, but I don't think even the doctors could compete with Joe Herring and her ways. So one of these doctors <laughs> was specifically like dedicated to helping the mayor get his shit together. And then Joe was like, just have a little bit of this pill. Just have a little bit of this sex. It'll be fine. And so <laughs> couldn't get him sober because Beverly was, yep, Beverly was under Joe's spell. Wow. Evelyn also claimed that Joe was stealing medication from her patients. So she'd be like, here's your, here's your meds. But it was just aspirin and she would just uh-huh. take the pain, pain pills or whatever. Not even like the, one for you, one for me. The just. ludes. Yeah, no, just swapping them out completely. And she said, so for, remember, Evelyn was the one that Joe called on the night of Pamela's murder. She said her first thought when Joe called her on the night of the murder was that she needed help getting the drugs out of the house before the police arrived. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. She also claimed that Joe had been the first, had been the first suspect that night. So police had immediately brought Joe in for questioning and Evelyn had gone with her. And there's fo- there is a photograph of Joe walking with a, escort through the police station that night. Mm-hmm. So she had definitely been there. And Evelyn was like, was I in the photo? And Bishop, the guy who found the photo said like, no. And she's like, good quote. None of that was supposed to be in the paper. I don't know who took care of that. Bev calling in a few favors. I'm sure. Meaning wow. Beverly Briley. Yeah. Such a cover up. Big time. So in the end, Michael Bishop, the author of the book, who found all that pulled all this together, formed the opinion that Lizzie and Joe formed a friendship while working together at Vanderbilt Hospital. They realized they liked to drink, dance, use drugs, and use men. He alleges that Joe killed Wilmer in 1960 for his insurance money and so she could be free to do whatever she wanted. And then Lizzie's husband died mysteriously three years later. Mm. And it does mm-hmm. seem that, that most people think that Joe killed Wilmer. That is not just a wild speculation. That's pretty much the solid kind of consensus. Right. So Lizzie's daughter, Gina, alleges that Lizzie would sell Gina to some of the men in their circle, like I mentioned before. And Gina's definitely like, my mom was not a good person. Right. Gina also alleges that Lizzie called her on the night of Paula's murder to ask her to bring a doctor's bag because she'd been badly hurt, but Gina refused. 
she was like, whatever you did, I don't want to know. So she, she, but she did say that her mother called her on that, on the night and was like, bring a, you need to bring a bag over to Joe's house. I need help. So Bishop alleges that Paula had openly started to accuse her mother of killing her father. Mm -hmm. And so Joe and Lizzie had murdered her. Hmm. He also alleges that the second grave she'd purchased, that Joe had purchased, had been for Alan Mm -hmm. in the off chance that he remembered something about that night. Wow. Or maybe they had planned to kill both of them, you know? Right. Yeah. Just, I mean, that's that sucks to if you kill the babysitter, you know, right. you kill your daughter, who's the one that takes care of the six year old. Well, and also if he comes out and sees what's happening. Right. You know, you got to get rid of all the evidence. Maybe they just couldn't do it in the end. She she had a soft spot for her son and let him live. So he also claims that Joe would have told the politicians who helped her cover it up that Paula was threatening to out their behaviors, which also could have been part of it. Paula was probably just like, mom, you're a mess. I'm going to take Alan or I'm going right. to turn you in because I know you're dealing drugs. I know you're fucking all these politicians and I know that you killed my father. Right. <laughs> any, any one of those things would be enough. <laughs> would be enough. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that the politicians would go along to help her cover it up. He thinks that Joe called Paula at the last minute on the day that Paula was murdered, called her at the last minute and pretended to need to stay at work late so that Paula had no choice but to stay home with Alan. He claims that John Clark had gone out that night to have drinks with Al Baker with intentions to find Joe at some point. So John had gone out and was like, I'm going to track down that lady that I hooked up with a week and a half ago. Right. And that he did, that John Clark did call her house and spoke with Paula and then did tell Al that he was going to go over there anyway to hang out with Joe's daughter. So the part that I don't know, I don't know if Al, I don't know how much of this was premeditated. Like Mm -hmm. the way Bishop kind of lined it up, he made it sound like it was a little bit more random, but my spidey senses tell me that maybe this was more premeditated. Right. That Joe had set this all up, had made it so that Paula couldn't leave the house. So she knew where Paula would be, had like called John Clark and said, hey, maybe let's hang out tonight. Mm-hmm. You know, had like mm-hmm. planted Al Baker to have this conversation with John Clark. So John Clark did not go over, didn't end up going over to Joe's house, but he did go to other bars to try to find Joe. So Paula mm-hmm. said, no, mom's not home. She's out. So he had said, and he testified, I was at, a, I was at several bars and I went to a liquor store and then he went home. Joe clocked out of work around 7 PM and was picked up by Jesse Henderson, Lizzie and Carl Rayleigh. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped. The scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And like I mentioned before, Carl Rayleigh was the one who was the purchasing agent for all of the medication at Vanderbilt Hospital. And he would have been able to alter records of what had been purchased also. Mm-hmm. So after the four of them had burgers at Crystal, they swung back to pick up Joe's car at the hospital. Then the men followed them back to Joe's house. He also thinks, Michael Bishop, thinks that John Clark accidentally left his gun at Joe's house when they'd had a one-night stand. Because remember, he did a piggyback ride of Alan to bed. Right. And so he thinks that John like unholstered his gun and set it down so that he didn't accidentally shoot this kid. (laughs) Or before he hooked up with Joe, or right. both, right? Right. And so he thinks that it actually had been used to kill Paula. Wow. He said that the men and Lizzie and Joe left Paula at home to die, drove to the motel, but then drove back to retrieve the gun. He also thinks that Joe might have called Evelyn to meet at her house to pretend to discover Paula's body with a witness. So Joe had, mm. had called her friend Amanda to go and find her husband's body at the hotel. Ah. So he thinks that she was probably trying to set that up again. Yeah. And that's the person that she, no. Who who was Uh, it? Evelyn was, Evelyn was what, oh, go ahead. What were you going to say? At nine o'clock. That was Evelyn. Okay. Evelyn was one, was one of the other nurses. And when Michael Bishop was like, why didn't you testify to any of this? She was like, are you kidding? I couldn't. Like I, like it was so dangerous. I couldn't testify Mm -hmm. about any of this. We had to lie. And when she got there, there was two detectives and Joe was there. there. Yes. But Paula was there or she didn't see Paula? Paula was dead. At nine o'clock. At nine o'clock. Paula was already dead. Oh, and Evelyn had had to stop to get gas or something. And so she had gotten there later than Joe had anticipated she would. I see. So Evelyn thinks that Joe called her to discover the body with her. Right. With her. Right. It does, which feels like it's got some holes in it because the way it was written, it sounded like Joe was like, something has happened to Paula. So she already knew and she's like, I need you to get over here right now, you know? Right. Um, but yeah, that's that, that's one of the things that's kind of fuzzy for me. But regardless, Joe called Evelyn to come over there. Joe did get all the drugs out of the house before the detectives show up, like this uh, pillowcase full of drugs. So... Joe also called, he thinks he also called her neighbor, Sam Carlson. So Sam Carlson with the loud car, the bloody guy at the Crystal Burger. Right. So Michael Bishop thinks she called him to try to set him up for the murder. So she thinks, he thinks that Sam Carlson went over there and Joe had planned to pretend that she walked in on Sam murdering Paula or like assaulting and murdering Paula. Right. So... Sam had entered the garage and Rayleigh, he thinks Rayleigh and Henderson had smashed a beer bottle over his head because there was a smashed beer bottle in the garage. Holy shit. And remember when Sam Carlson ran into the King guy, he said, two guys smashed me over the head, so I'm going home to get my gun to shoot them. Right. And in the meantime, he's got this shitty car, this loud car that's like acting up. And he thinks that as he was pulling out, he hit something because there were signs that somebody had run into something. So he thinks he did actually damage his car. So went to the Crystal Burger to see if he could get his car running better. (laughs) The auto body shop is closed. 
but that he, Sam Carlson probably didn't actually have anything to do with the murder, but he had gotten there, seen the body, knew Paula was dead. So he's like, I don't want to have anything to do with this. So okay. he takes himself out of the equation as best he can. But that, yeah, that Rayleigh and Henderson had smashed a bottle of beer over his head, trying to subdue him, right? To like, right, keep, to make keep it him and be there. like, sure. And then be like, hey, I know we caught this guy. We hit him over the head with a beer bottle because he was killing Paula. Exactly right. Totally. But he But he got out of there. He was also like on a bunch of roids and stuff. And so he <laughs> was hanging out with all these professional wrestlers. And there is some speculation that Joe was selling this professional wrestlers like steroids and stuff too. So it's all very convoluted. Very big old web of deceit. Yeah, man. So Michael Bishop also speculates that Lizzie was the one who shot the bullet into the ground at the apartment complex where the police found it, mm. which sealed Clark's conviction, which right. makes me think that Al Baker was in on it to some extent. Right. Al Baker calls Lizzie and is like, hey, do you still have that gun? Uh, I just set it up, so go over there tonight. Wait for the cops to leave and go over there and shoot it into the ground. We need, we need to plant the bullet. And the thing that kind of kicked all of this off was... So Michael Bishop found a letter from the mayor, Beverly Briley, that, so there was a concerned citizen that had been like, why are you not taking this crime in this area seriously? Because remember there had been that rapist prowler guy. Right. And so Beverly Briley had written a letter that was like, I, I am taking it very seriously. In fact, on the night that Paula was murdered, I was pulling out of that neighborhood, this address at that neighborhood. And... The author was like, that's so strange. Like, why was he there? Why was he in that neighborhood? There's no reason for him to be in that neighborhood. Right. But he figured out that Beverly Briley was having this like longstanding affair with Joe. And so had been in the neighborhood to help Joe that night oh, to cover it up. Shit. Yeah. So that's like the first clue for him on top of the fact that Pamela's case file was in with some administrative records. <laughs> <laughs> So that, you guys, is that's it. That is the wow. bizarro, wildo, crazyo case of the murder of Paula Herring. I, I you know what I mean? You yes. know what I mean? Once I got about halfway through, I was like, I have made a horrible mistake. I'm never going to be able to keep track of all of this. But I think that it's, pretty likely that her mother had something to do with it. Absolutely. 100%. Either, either in the heat of the moment or it was premeditated that she and Lizzie were like, all right, Paula's got to go. She's getting too big for her britches and she's got to go. Yeah, 100%. No, Joe definitely, definitely had something to do with it. Yeah. I just, that's so much cover up. That's it so really much is. cover up and like and, bad behaviors. <laughs> well, and you know? if you, yeah. And if you read the book, he, Michael Bishop, he's got all of his footnotes, all of his research. He's met a lot of forensic scientists and people who were like, yeah, yeah, you, this is, you're on the right track or you definitely figured this out. They all said, you know, when they're like, how did Joe's husband die? And he's like poison. And everyone's like, yep, that's a woman's. Yeah. Nope, like nope, only nope. women kill with poison. Men do not say, commit like, suicide by poison. I, w I would be very curious to know how many men well, choose poison. One guy said that he had covered 2,000 suicide cases and had never ever once come across an instance where a man took poison to kill himself. 
so her whole profile, they were like, yeah, this mm-hmm. all lines up, especially with her behavior and all these people, who all of her associates that Michael Bishop was able to track down were able to confirm that she was doing some real shady, shady, shady shit with some shady individuals, some powerful and shady individuals. So there are a lot of questions I have about like the men, why would they have inserted those other two men to testify that they had been there, Mm -hmm. you know, versus the men who were actually there? Why didn't they just shift the timeline? I don't know if it was because these two men were too sketchy, and had ties to Beverly Briley because they had all been in the Navy right. and they would all go to the VA hospital together. And there's a lot more details like that that were not important enough to include. And also right. like, you know how those books are written when you read a true crime novel and it's like kind of written backwards a yes. little bit, you know? Yes. And they're like, and, and the diner on the top of 14th and Henderson is <laughs> right. the overlook of the view. And you can mm-hmm. hear old Jacoby Sampson's mm-hmm. mare bailing in the background. Or you're like, okay, what are you, what yeah, are you saying? Let's go, go, go. Right. So <laughs> there's a fair amount of that going on. I yeah. just tried to keep it just the facts, as much no. of the facts as possible. And, and no, it's super interesting. You did a very good job. Thank you. With a complicated case. Thank you. Um, I'm going to have to chew on that yeah. for a while. Yeah, and it's only a 300-page book. So if anybody else wants to read it and pick up any of the details that I dropped, please, by all means. I was so excited to cover it because Sadie and I have been taking you to Terror Town for the last couple of weeks. And I was like, this will be a great case. Like, this is a... Older unsolved case gets solved later by a citizen detective. Fun, right? Like, yeah. hooray. And then, <laughs> I was like, oh. Enter new character. All enter of new Nashville. Character. All enter, of yes. Metro Nashville. All the politicians and everyone. Yeah. So I definitely feel, I felt confident enough by the end of it that I wasn't taking on some like wild goose chase down you know, speculation road, but... No, it really does seem like everybody involved in any position of power had reason to keep Joe out of... Protected. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, she could have uncovered everybody. Yes. For everything. Yes, yes. And taken all of of Nashville down if she wanted to. Right, or any individual down on any level. Yeah, exactly. And so Beverly was like, okay, um, mm-hmm. whatever you need. Yes. And her happen. boyfriend at the DA's office was like, yeah, I got you, girl. I'm going to nail this John Clark to the wall. Yeah. Wow. So whether or not, not how much of that was premeditated, I don't know. But it does seem like she got John Clark's gun. She was like, okay, this is the perfect crime. Yeah, absolutely. Gets Al Baker, gets everybody kind of lined up and ready to go, frames the other two men who showed up with her, or they were in on it. I don't know. But Mm -hmm. yeah, poor freaking Paula I I know, Paula and Alan. I just picture like the image that's coming to mind is poor little Alan, like just sitting in an empty house by himself. Like, you know, just Mm -hmm. completely alone. Yep. Well, and, and then also he, if it's true that Joe bought both of those grave sites with the intention of either killing Alan that night, because she bought them in February, the same month that she killed her daughter, allegedly. Right. If she bought those sites with the intention of either killing Alan 
or having it just in case she needed to kill her son. He would have known that, right? Like she would have been saying things to him or leading him or putting some kind of pressure on him to keep quiet. And he claims, he's like, I blocked that entire weekend out. I have literally no memory of it. So this little child was like traumatized into forgetting whatever it was he saw. And everybody was like, there's no way he could have slept through three gunshots. Absolutely. And And a brutal fight. Like she was beaten to pulp, basically. Oh, God. Yeah. Yep. Poor Paula. Poor Paula. No, I mean, but I think especially at that young age, it would be very easy to repress those memories Definitely. deep, deep, deep inside. Definitely. But then to and have lost your entire dissociate. family. Yep. Yeah. yeah. He had a very hard life. There's just no, there's no way. And if Joe was bringing him back to that, I mean, it just, oh, poor Alan. Well, and then to be, yeah. And then to be left, assuming that she did all of these terrible things and then potentially killed her daughter, but like to be left with her until she died herself at a very young age of alcoholism. Right. Yep. Which, and she had always been an alcoholic too. That was part of the reason that Paul had left. She was always like, I have to get away from my mom. She's too dangerous, too unhealthy. Absolutely. And there was Gina did not confirm or deny, but Michael Bishop speculated too, that maybe, Joe had tried to recruit Paula into yeah. their ring because Gina had been recruited. And so there's a very good chance that Joe had tried to bring Paula in because sure. of course she would have, unless she was too jealous because Paula was getting prettier and softer and was no longer a tomboy and stuff. So maybe she just didn't want the competition. But anyway, ugh. Ooh, wow. Who knew? I just, I really, it's always surprising to me when I'm just like bebopping through my very typical life raising my kids mm. making mm. you know forgetting to fold all my laundry or what you know like yeah. <laughs> tell me about then people it. are like running sex drug rings yes with the detectives i think that it happens more than we would oh, like yeah. to think no. it happens all the time well, apparently always, yes well and i always go back to god what's that poor woman whose son got abducted and she's like, people keep, he visited me. All these people have visited oh, me and oh said God. that a yeah, super like famous the, case. Um, I can't Johnny believe Johnny Gosh. Johnny Gosh's mom. Yeah. How I pulled that out. Oof. Yeah. I know. Well, and then when no. Epstein and everything started going down and I was like, Johnny Gosh's mom has been right this entire time. She 100% has. Yes. Her poor little son got sex ringed. Yep. And she's been screaming it from the rooftops from the yep. beginning. And of course she sounds insane. And she's like, yes. yeah, these little t- children were like coming and visiting me as teens and, and young adults and saying, yeah, we were given BJs to politicians, including very, very high up politicians with your son and he's alive and ugh. Yeah. Anyway, yep, there you go, guys. Trust no one. Very dark underworld mm-hmm. that uh, is very, people are very good at covering up. That's the whole name of the game. So I think the mm-hmm. I think the bottom line is that we need to get more corrupt, guys. We just need to <laughs> nip it in the bud and right? versus rather than be surprised when you hear about political sex rings, you just should f- start one on your own <laughs> so that you are ahead of the game. I'm gonna start like a a knitting ring. No, I'm doing the full sex one because mm. I'll be like, I don't even want to have a sex ring. I just don't like to be surprised when I find out that one exists. <laughs> You're like, oh yeah, no big whoop there. No big whoop. I just don't handle that very well. It just 
keeps me up, bothers me for like an hour or two. So I'd rather just start a sex ring rather than be sort of <laughs> taken off guard for an hour right. or two. <laughs> wow. Well, oh my God. Good work, man. That Thanks. was a good one. It was complicated. I saw that one pop up in our suggestions and yeah. I'm glad yep, you yep. took it. Thank you. Yep. I am very happy that I did that. And thank you for the suggestion. Honestly, it was, yeah, it is a fascinating case. And I'm really, I'm really impressed by Michael Bishop. Even if I feel like there's a few holes that I was frustrated by overall, my God, man, the guy just yeah, like. that's a tremendous amount of work. Dogged is the word I would use for Michael Bishop. Dogged in his yes. resolve to solve this case. So bravo, Michael Bishop. Let's do a couple shout yetis. I'm going to save name time because we are very much running over time. Yeah. And I have about a million things to do, but I do, I don't think we did shout yetis last time, so I don't want to abandon yeah, the babies. Yeah, a few weeks. Yeah. So, so, so keep sending the name times. I still have an enormous pile of names to get to next week, but this week I'm going to shout out some Patreon supporters. And if you want a shout yeti of your own in the future, just sign up for little as $5 a month. You get a whole other giant catalog of episodes pushing 150. Yeah, that's dude. a lot of content, you guys. Even if you don't like us, that's something to do for a very long time. It really is. And you can also <laughs> uh, pay a dollar yeah. for no ads yes. if you want. You yes. just get the regular main feed episodes ad-free for yeah. $1 a month. And all Patreon episodes are ad-free. So pay four more dollars a month and you get a whole entire other catalog of episodes. So give you something to do. Do it. Please. <laughs> you don't even have to like us. <laughs> Just give us money. It's not mandatory. Uh, who do we have this week, Sadie Ray? Well, thank you so much to Olive. Oh, God. Uh, oh, Olive. When you come at me with a name like Olive, I'm just like, oh, I'm ready to go. Ready to go. And then <laughs> uh, it's yep. so cute. It's so beautiful. Yep. I love olives. It's, uh, They're delicious. I mean, the is beautiful. Also, just yes, that's one of my favorite foods. But the name, a name like Olive, it doesn't feel real. It feels like mm -hmm. that is reserved for characters in novels and young adult books that are the cool girl. They're the girl mm -hmm. that captures all of the attention in a subtle and understated way, who has a beauty that is classic and timeless and undeniable, that has a je ne sais quoi that is intelligent but not precocious, that is humble but brave but bold, that puts an outfit together effortlessly as if they were a teenager in New York City, which are the most stylish people on the planet, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. As And also has a voice like a bird. Definitely big old eyeballs. And the right size mouth. You know what I mean? <laughs> Most importantly. You know what I mean? Like yes. I, the older I get, the more I realize that having a good mouth is like a wildly underrated quality. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Olive has the best mouth. Perfect mouth. So bravo, Olive. I'm proud of you. I'm jealous of you. But in a uh, olive kind of way, not in a shitty way. In a, <laughs> I, 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 we all want to be olive, and olive gets to be olive, and so, bravo for that, olive. God, Keep lucky. it up. 
I know. Please enjoy the croissant that you were about to bite into <laughs> at this moment because that's we all know that's what's going on over there. Fresh squeeze, whatever the fuck you just put together. Yeah. Grapefruit juice. Yes. Or one of those, you, you take the time to like cut out the wedges and your grapefruit and put a cherry in the middle and Supremes, sugar. they call them. Yeah, supreme. Yeah. yeah, you eat your grapefruits supreme style, not with the pith on them. Supreme no. style. Supreme style. Thank you so much, Olive. Thank, Thank you, you, Olive. Thank you so much to Night Fancy Jess. Yeah, Night Fancy Jess. What's so fancy about the night? Well, Jess will tell you now. The night is made of sparkling stars and also velvet skies. <laughs> the night is fancy because Jess is out there prowling around. Ooh. And Jess is in the night to make it fancy with this sound. Doodly doodly that is the fanciest sound in town and nobody can tell me otherwise. <laughs> Jess is out there making sounds and teaching the night how to do it. The night is so fancy because Jess and the night was already fancy. But Jess comes around and makes the sound and the night is officially... Dancing. Yeah. Thank you, Jess. Thank you, Night <laughs> Fancy you. Jess. Yep. We see your messages. Yes, your we do. comments. Yep. Thank you so much for being in a very active and important part of our little community. I, we appreciate it so much. Thank you so much to Chris. Yeah, Chris. Chris is like, I'm not fucking with the last name. I'm not fucking no. with the middle name. I'm not even fucking no. with the full name. Assuming your name is Christopher or Christoph or Christation. Or Christina. Or Christina. Or Christ <laughs> There's so Chris many possibilities. Christation is my favorite. Christation. 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 Just Chris. C-H-R-I-S. Period. Don't worry yep. about it. Chris mm -hmm. kicks the door in. Walks in, he's like, what's up? You know my name. And everyone's like, hey, Chris. And he's like, oh, we're going to try that again. Walks out, or they are like, we're going to try that again. Walks out of the room, kicks the door open, comes in. Chris, 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 yeah. Chris. Mm -hmm. Spins and in circles. Yep. And Chris Flexes says. muscles. Yes, muscle flexing, spins in circles, and then whips open a whiteboard and <laughs> writes the letter C. Chris says, let's break this down. C stands for catastrophically attractive and everyone's like yeah 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 you know they're like mm-hmm like in the movies mm -hmm. like yeah mm-hmm mm -hmm. like they're onto something here h stands for haphazardly stylish <laughs> don't worry about it because i don't even try it just happens it just happens that chris is haphazardly stylish i stands for incognito Ooh. And it was like, what do you mean, Chris? And Chris says, well, you don't know if my name is Crustacean or Christina or <laughs> Chrysanthemum. You don't have any idea. And I like it that mm -hmm. way. I like to right. keep it. Don't know my pronouns. Don't know my pronouns. Don't, don't need to know. Nope. Don't know my na last name. Don't know my, if I'm a DDS. You don't know. <laughs> I'm just Chris. <laughs> S stands for satisfactory guaranteed. <laughs> And everyone's like, that doesn't make grammatical sense, Chris. And Chris says, don't worry about it. Chris does what Chris wants. And everyone says, Chris, 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 you're right. We're sorry. We apologize, Chris. 
<laughs> and that's the tale of Chris. Thank you, yeah. Chris. Did you skip R? What was R? Uh, I just kiss. Kiss, oh. because it's kiss because everyone wants to kiss Chris. So that was part of the secret trick that okay, got it. Chris was like, yeah, I thought so, because you all want to kiss me. So I changed my name to Kiss temporarily, but now I'm Chris again. So don't worry about it. Kicks the door open, leaves. Goodbye. Everyone's befuddled and f- uh, f- uh, flushed with, That's right. you know, like a little. They start slow clapping. Slow clapping, but also like crushing on Chris. <laughs> Everyone's crushing on Chris. Slash Thank kiss. you so much, Chris. Chris Station. Chris Station. We Chris love you so much. Kiss. We love you so much. All right, let's do one more, and then I gotta go. All right, let's get out of here. Thank you so much to Rachel B. Yeah, Rachel B. Silent, be still. She says, Rachel, bemoaning the time that we've spent. Rachel, beside myself, with so much love for Rachel, besotted, beautiful dove. Rachel is Rachel, and you know, and do I, that Rachel is the loveliest, so much that we sigh. Rachel, Rachel, beside us for life, Rachel, but not that she's anyone's wife unless she wants to be, but she is ultimately free (laughs) to be Rachel B, and we love what we see. Uh, the point of Beautiful. that sonnet was that Rachel can be your, someone's wife or not. Rachel B is just needs to Rachel B, who she be, and who she be is beautiful. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel B. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you, all of you, all so for much for being here. Absolutely. If you want to spend more time with us, please find us on TikTok, Facebook, Instagram at They Will Kill. You can go to our website theywillkill.com and you can always email us at theywillkillpodcast at gmail.com yeah you can rate review and subscribe to us yes please do it's been a minute so guys get on over there give us a little review yeah help help us we need you (laughs) if you have not done it we know it's annoying go to apple Podcasts. slam a rating in our ratings area section (laughs) and we will appreciate it very much very much Slam. Slam one in there. Slam. Uh, Thank you, AJ Bergans, for our music. Thank you so much. And uh, remember. Listen, just start a sex ring so you're not surprised. Yeah, do it. When you find out that there are multiple of them local to you. Right? And then you'll, like, either your sex rings will merge or you'll have gang wars. Yes, you'll have like turf supremacy. Yeah, it's good to get turf supremacy. But more than anything, it's just good to not be surprised by that stuff because it is jarring. It is jarring when you find out. So if you're one step ahead of the game, you don't have to worry about it. No, don't worry about it. Yeah. You know, it sounds like there's plenty of perks. Just don't let it get out of hand. Just really, (laughs) you know, guys, have fun out there, but keep it clean. Be safe with your sex. Be nice. Be Be consensual. Don't, you know, cover up murders. No, no. Just don't murder, period. No. That's the first step. Don't involve children. 
No, we're just here to make sure you're not too caught off guard when you find out that there is a sex ring. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Simple as that. So good (laughs) advice. Take that advice. Yep. We love you. We do. We'll see you next week. Sure will. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.